This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Equity Mind! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. We've all started 2022 a little bit nervous as uh, growth stocks have fallen, and we're all looking at our portfolios and wondering how we should think and how we should approach it. And I'm excited for this interview today because uh, we've got an expert from one of our favorite uh, investing houses uh, to come and help us uh, understand it all. That's it, Ren. 12 months ago, we sat down with TDM who published uh, a memo on the macro environment predicting that the mid-pandemic world of cheap money and crazy valuations would end up on the list of macro moments like the tech bubble, the global financial crisis, and European debt crisis. The memo warned that you can't just own an amazing business regardless of valuation. But now, 12 months later, TDM have published a follow-up memo, and we have one of the memo's authors, Andy Simon, joining us to discuss it today. Andy, welcome. Thanks, guys. I'm delighted to be here. So, Andy is a member of the investment team at TDM Growth Partners. TDM is a private investment firm that was founded in 2004 and has compounded client capital at over 25% per annum for 17 years. Prior to joining TDM, Andy worked for VGI Partners and Macquarie Group. So, We've got some intro questions, Ren, to kick it off. Yeah. So, Andy, before we get into uh, the macro moment that we're living through at the moment, uh, we'd love to uh, get to know you a little bit more. And we always like to start at the very beginning. Um, Can you tell us the story of your first investment? Sure. Happy to. Um, So, it actually goes back to 2006. Uh, I just started university and I was interested in investing. So, uh, so at the time, I, I set up a Comsec account. That was the thing to do. And I basically got a list of the ASX 200 and started, you know, started running down it and found the first company I'd heard of, which was BHP. Uh, so I bought BHP. Now that's a that's a pretty boring answer, you know, blue chip BHP. But really, that that sort of purchase really sort of set off my investment journey and and actually has you know made me the investor I am today. So I might just tell a bit more about 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 that story. So it was 2006, and you know, for those who were investing at the time. I might remember that you know the big theme of the day was the commodities boom. So you basically had 
like these mining producers and sort of pre-revenue mining explorers that were going public and, you know, popping 100% on day one and, were, you know, were basically the modern day tech company was, was a mining company. And so I bought these BHP shares. I think I paid about $26 at the time and it just started going up, like, you know, the day after I bought it. And I think after 12 months or so, it was in the mid-40s uh, and I thought I was a stock market genius. And the problem with that is as the stock price went up, so did my confidence. And so what I started doing is I started, you know, dabbling in sort of the more speculative end of the, of, of the market and investing in some, you know, early stage mining explorers and, and other, other speculative mining companies. And heading into, heading into the financial crisis in 2008, um, I had a portfolio of about 20 basically speculative mining companies, I think one or two biotechs thrown in for, you know, for diversification. And the problem with that is that, you know, my portfolio suffered, I think it was a 60 or 65% drawdown during the, during the financial crisis. And that, that wasn't just a, that wasn't a temporary loss of capital. That was real loss of capital because many of these businesses, you know, actually needed funding, you know, to keep doing what they were doing. And so I was staring at these massive losses. I was devastated. I was watching all my friends going on their lavish, you know, summer, summer European trips and buying cars and, and whatnot. And, you know, I, I had taken the sensible approach and decided to invest my money and, and I had nothing to show for it. And if I sort of look, look back at that experience, I mean, there's probably two things that have stuck with me from that. And, and the first is it's, it's the importance of knowing where we are in the cycle. So that's, that's number one. Uh, and, and the second is just the, you know, the value of having high quality assets in your portfolio, which, which I didn't have at that time. The importance of knowing where we are in the cycle, I'm sure, is going to be a theme that we chat about throughout this episode. So we'll we'll touch on that in a moment. But uh, Andy, working at Macquarie, VGI, and now TDM, have you developed a personal investing philosophy? Yeah, look, so there's there's definitely been been an evolution in my in my style over the years, and I think I think a lot of investors go on this journey. So in in the early days, um, you know, I was really looking for sort of deep discounts for you know average quality businesses. And over the years, my, my tolerance to, you know, pay high prices for better quality businesses has definitely been a theme. Uh, and that's, that sort of started with that, with that financial crisis experience that I just described, but also, you know, the past eight or so years at TDM have, have really solidified that approach for me. Um, you know, I, I don't really like the terms value and growth investing. I think they're a bit meaningless. Like you know, TDM, we invest in high growth businesses, but we're looking to pay good prices for those. So, you know, are we growth investors? Are we value investors? We're just looking to, to make great investments in, in, in high growth businesses. I mean, I guess the other thing I'd say, a, a core thing that's sort of been with me from, from the early days is the idea of margin of safety. And, you know, if you go back to the, to the Benjamin Graham sort of Warren Buffett definition of margin of safety, it, it's very quantitative. It's basically, you know, you compare the price you pay to your estimate of intrinsic value and, and, and the bigger the discount to the price you pay, the bigger your margin of safety. And I think that's a good starting point. But I mean, what I'd add to that is some qualitative overlays. And so what I mean by that is if you take, if you take two businesses, you know, business A is a fast growing business. It's got really strong and growing competitive advantages and it's got an awesome management team uh, and it's trading at some high multiple. And you've got business B that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a slow growing business. It's got sort of low, low competitive advantages and, and, a, and, a, and a weak management team and it's trading at a low headline valuation. If you compare those two businesses, business A may have a better margin of safety than business B purely because of those qualitative factors. So that's, that's something that I've, I've definitely come to appreciate more and more as, as time has gone on. So let's set the scene. Uh, 
and context for this memo. Super fascinating read. And I think firstly, I would encourage our, our audience to check out the original memo from 12 months ago that's available on the uh, TDM website on their medium. Um, your memo starts with the context in markets today. We're seeing 40% of the NASDAQ uh, is down some sort of 50% or so. Can you help us set the scene, what we're seeing in markets at the moment, what's happening in the growth part of the market? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's fair to say it's been it's been pretty savage out there in, in the growthiest part of the market, you know, for the past three or so months. Uh, I think if you if you if you call up the memo, you'll you'll see the the starting picture is a picture of a, a person sort of free falling head first from the sky. Uh, I think that that picture, you know, that, that was that was purposely chosen. It it does feel a bit like that at the moment. And I think one one of the things we point out in the note that is if you if you look at the Nasdaq index uh, as a whole, it, it's down about fifteen percent from its all time highs. But if if you look beneath the surface and you look at the actual constituents of the Nasdaq, um, you know many of them are down a lot more than that. And I think the I think the data point we we call out is that forty percent of the Nasdaq is down by by more than fifty percent. So the last time we were in this situation was March of twenty twenty during during the COVID crash. But as as most people can recall. The you know the central banks and governments stepped into backstop markets then, and so that was a pretty short-lived decline. Uh, you really have to go all the way back to early two thousand and nine to the depths of the financial crisis for the last time we were in a situation where where so many of the of the Nasdaq constituents were down by by that amount. So it really is a quite an unusual situation that we're in right now. A common question we get uh, here at Equity Mates, and I guess that Bryce and I are pondering is. Uh, uh, are we in 2000 again? Uh, you know, it feels like the the really high growth, unprofitable stocks uh, have obviously fallen the most this time, and that was really the story of uh, early 2000 as well. Uh, in your memo, you go to uh, then address that question. So, I guess I'll just ask you: Are we in 2000 again? And we'll say no upfront. We don't think we're in 2000 again. Um, so obviously we go into a lot of detail in the memo, but maybe just to call out a few points. I mean, that, that truly was an exceptional period. And, you know, if, if you look, if you look at the NASDAQ back in, in 2000, when it peaked, it had just come off this period of pretty, pretty extreme growth. So it, it went up about four times, uh, in, in a three year period, but actually a lot of that happened in the last six months. So in the last six months, it, it actually doubled. So from September uh, 99 to, to March of, of 2000, the index doubled. And uh, you guys might be familiar with the term melt-up. Have you heard of, mm. you heard of the term melt-up? Yeah. Yeah. There was definitely a melt-up happening at, at that point in time. So it, it's it's when there's a frenzied you know, buying of, of, of shares and prices squeeze up a lot in a short period of time. And we just haven't seen anything like that this time around. So I guess that's the, the first point I'd make. You know, the second thing we'd call out is if you look at valuations today versus then, they're a lot more reasonable today. Back then, you had so many pre-revenue companies going public that investors started using these uh, absurd, absurd valuation metrics like like enterprise value to, to eyeballs or, or, or enterprise value to clicks as proxies, just because they they, they had nothing else to to rely on. Um, and you know, out, outside of a few concept stocks uh, today, we just aren't seeing anything like that either. But even if you just look at the more established companies, like if if you look at some of the household names like Microsoft, Cisco, Intel, Adobe, all these companies were were public back in two thousand. Um, I think in the memo, we, we actually pull out 10 companies that, that are pretty well-known um, established tech businesses that were listed back in 2000. Uh, and those 10 businesses were trading at around 20 times forward revenue back in 2000. Whereas if, if you look today, the average um, uh, the average software or SaaS company is trading at about eight times forward revenue today. 
which is actually in line with its long-term average. So, so we just aren't seeing that those crazy valuations like we were, you know, back in 2000. And I guess the final thing I'd say just on that, it's sort of related to that, that point on valuations is that the business models then versus now have changed a lot as well. And this is one of the points we, we call out in, in the memo. But if, if you go back to 2000, most of the leading software and technology businesses were generating basically one, you know, one-off non-recurring revenue. So, you know, people, people might remember going, going to the store and buying your, your Windows or Office CD-ROM and, you know, installing it in the computer. And, and that was a one-off purchase. That was one-off revenue for Microsoft. Uh, they wouldn't get that revenue again until you went back a few years later and, and bought an upgrade or, or whatnot. Whereas if you look today, the, the leading SaaS businesses are all recurring revenue. And most software businesses today are generating, you know, basically all recurring revenue. And what that means is every year they're starting with a full book of revenue. They're not having to having to build it up again. So it makes these businesses far more predictable. It makes the growth rates more sustainable, and all else equal, that that warrants a higher valuation today. I I remember when Microsoft Office changed to a subscription, yeah. and I was so spewing, angry. Spewing. But <laughs> I ended up paying it, and I still pay it to yeah. this day. <laughs> it's a much better model for the businesses, and it's a much better model for the for the for the for the consumers as well. So in in your analysis, uh, Andy, you look at the Nasdaq index uh, x the big tech companies, which which we know have been really holding the whole index up. So is there is, is there anything? that the market cap weighting of the index is really obscuring? Yeah, good good question, Bryce. And um, I mean, if as I said before, if, if you just look at the NASDAQ, it's down 15%, uh, which is a lot, but um, that's that's really masking sort of the pain being being seen below the surface. And and the reason for that is because the NASDAQ is a, is a market cap weighted index, which means each constituent in the index is weighted by its market cap. And if, if, you, if you look at it closer, you'll see that about 10 companies account for half that market cap. And those 10 companies are, you know, the well-known names like Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, uh, even Pepsi's in there, I think, uh, on, you know, depending on what day you look at it. But effectively, you've got these 10 businesses that, that account for so much of the, of the NASDAQ's market cap that really the uh, index is just a, just, a, just a reflection of those 10 names. And, and that long tail of, of smaller company, you know, where, you know that, that, that long tail where the pain is being felt today is really not moving the needle for the index. So we've set the context and now that brings us to the big question that is on everyone's lips and that is where to from here. Before we get to that, we will take a quick break though to hear from our sponsors. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So, Andy, before the break, uh, Bryce asked the big question, where to from here? And uh, I guess that's where your memo uh, moves to. And 
There's a quote that I pulled out uh, that I think we should kick off this conversation with. Uh, in your memo, you write, uh, there has never been more fast-growing at-scale software businesses with amazing unit economics than there are today. And I think, you know, Bryce and I, when we talk in the office about the amount of businesses that are looking cheap, uh, that could be, you know, this could be a great buying opportunity. We're really, I guess, feeling that, that there is a big opportunity here. And uh, you guys in the memo then uh, look at this generation of SaaS businesses, compare them to their historic peers to really back up that that statement. So, what were your key takeaways from this analysis? Talk to us about these fast-growing, amazing businesses uh, that that are available for us. Yeah, sure. So we certainly certainly share that sentiment, um, Alec. And I mean, I guess you know one one point just to reiterate was that point around the business model differences that, that I called out earlier, just that, you know, that, that recurring revenue versus, versus one-off revenue. So I think that, that you know, that's an important point for people to keep in mind. Uh, but I guess, I guess the other key takeaway is just the expansion in the number of high quality software businesses of now versus back then. And so I think in, in the memo, we sort of go back in time and we say in 2006, there were two public SaaS companies and that was Adobe and, and Salesforce. So two, two pure play um, SaaS companies. And actually, it's not even really accurate to call Adobe a SaaS company back then because it hadn't gone through its transition from from um, license to cloud. But effectively, you had, you had those two businesses. If you fast forward to today, there's 94, at least 94 public SaaS businesses of scale. And so what that means is of scale is, you know, it's around 450 million of, of revenue on average, you know, growing it at, at least 30% per annum. And so if we look at that, we've never seen so many high quality, fast growing, recurring revenue software businesses as, 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 as we have today. And as growth investors, that, that, that really excites us. And obviously it helps that valuations have come down as well. Andy, we just need more money to invest in all of I these. Know, There's I too know. much opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you and I both, we're all in the same boat. That's Ren's the, that's constantly the, that's the complaining part. about his cash flow yeah, situation. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we'll touch on on that in a moment though. But um, so many of these software companies are starting to look pretty cheap, uh, but investors and, and the equity mates community are feeling a bit of hesitancy to sort of jump in right now because of all these headlines we're seeing around, you know, the fear of imminent interest rate rises and, and what that means on uh, on the markets and on these uh, growth companies. So what's TDM's view on interest rates? Yeah, I, I thought you'd ask me that question. It's, it's obviously the question on, on everyone's mind. Um, and look, I'll, I'll start by saying uh, we don't spend any time at all at TDM trying to predict interest rates. It, it's just not our game. We don't have any, any edge or, or, or ability to do that. Uh, but obviously, interest rates do impact valuations, and as bottom-up stock pickers, um, we need to we need to you know factor that in somehow. So we do have a mental model to to deal with interest rates, and the approach that we take is we use a through the cycle multiple in in all our valuations. So th- so through the cycle means it it, it applies or it it makes sense in sort of most reasonable or most normal market environments. And so what that means in practice is if interest rates go down a lot like they have been for the past few years we're not necessarily ratcheting up our valuations. And if interest rates go up a lot, we're not necessarily ratcheting down our valuations. We actually focus, spend a lot more time trying to get the businesses themselves right. So trying to get, you know, trying to trying to forecast the growth rates, trying to understand the competitive advantages, understand the people and culture, because we think if we get that right, um, then we, you know, we don't have to worry too much about where interest rates are in, in, in five years. Um, you know, obviously there are, scenarios where you know maybe rates interest rates overshoot to you know and you know we're, we're in a 10 percent interest rate environment or something which which means that our 
you know, we'd have to go back to the drawing board probably and, and reassess our, our our framework. But I guess I'd say in, in that scenario, there are probably other things happening in the world as well that would cause us to go back and reassess our forecasts and our, our expectations of that business and that investment anyway. So, you know, as investors, we're, we're always absorbing and, and digesting new information and, and reflecting that in, in our valuations and in our assessments of, of every business in the portfolio. And and so um, that's, what, that's what we do in that, in that environment. Um, so I guess my advice would be anyone out there who's worried about interest rates, I'd spend more time worrying about getting the businesses right rather than where interest rates are going to be. Mm, I think that's a an important reminder and uh, maybe, Andy, if you can pass that on to some of the financial news publications, uh, <laughs> that, that would help kill the noise for everyone. <laughs> yeah, but, absolutely. But look, we I feel like we've covered a lot in, in this conversation so far. So, if, if I can just recap... Um, you know, we've seen uh, a big fall off in growth. Forty uh, percent of the Nasdaq index is down more than fifty percent. Um, but you know, from what you guys at TDM have found from the the work you've done, yeah, you know, it's we're not in two thousand. There's a number of key differences. Importantly, the businesses today are a lot better than they were in two thousand, and there's more of them, which is really exciting. And a lot of the short-term noise that we're hearing at the moment around interest rates and inflation aren't too much of a concern for long-term growth investors like yourselves at TDM. So, with all that context in mind, you know we framed this uh, this part of the conversation as where to from here. And I think there's another quote that I want to pull out from your memo, which I think sums up where TDM's uh, view of where we're going from here is, which is... When we look at our portfolio today, our expected returns have never been higher at approximately 35 to 40% per annum for the next four years. Epic. Now, that's exciting. And we love to hear that. We love to read that. And we love to unpack that. And, but it is, a, it is a pretty bullish call when the market is you know, quite nervous and uh, many of the high growth names, um, some of which are in the TDM portfolio, um, have suffered of, of late. Um, you know, Some of the names that we... Uh, talk about here at Equity Mates are down over fifty percent from their all-time highs. So I guess what gives you and the TDM investment team the confidence to to make that call that over the next four years you're looking at thirty-five to forty percent returns a year? Yeah, sure. So it, it could just be that we're optimistic people. I mean, I guess that, that's why we invest in, in <laughs> I, growth I, companies. I think but... as investors, you have to be optimistic. I'm expect I'm expecting fifty percent plus for mine personally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, um, no. Look, I mean, we don't spend a lot of time worrying about share prices. I mean, we think of ourselves as business owners. So whether we own a, a very small stake in a business or, or, or a larger stake in a business, you know, we think of ourselves as, as part owners in that business. And I think the the analogy that that I love is 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 that of Mr. Market from the Intelligent Investor. And I think in the memo we actually refer to it as Miss Market. Uh, we want it to be gender inclusive, so I, I might stick with that. Uh, and and the analogy is that you know you've you've got this this person Miss Market, and every day Miss Market comes knocking on your door, offering to sell you uh, shares or, or buy shares from you at some price, and you don't know what that price is. It, it's it's whatever price she feels like selling it or buying it from you on that day. The problem with Miss Market is she has wild mood swings, and some days she's a manic depressant, other days she's wildly optimistic. And it's not our job as investors to try and predict Miss Market's mood. It, it's our job to take advantage of her mood swings. So if she's offering us really attractive prices on, on, on a certain day, then we're going to take advantage of that by buying shares from her. And if she's offering to sell us shares at really high prices, then we'll take advantage of that and we'll sell shares to her. And so that's sort of the relationship that we, 
we have with share prices. And obviously right now she's offering us really good prices. And so we're going to be buying from her. I love that. Don't predict the moves. Take advantage of the moves as they as they come. That's um, you know, I, I imagine there's a lot of the equity mates community at the moment figuring out or trying to think through what's going to be coming. But if if you just think about what's happening right now and what's occurring in front of you, it can take away a lot of that anxiety around uh, trying to be the the one investor that predicts the future correctly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, for sure. So, Andy, in TDM 17 years, this isn't the first correction in growth. The BVP Emerging Cloud Index has seen up to 20% corrections in 2014, 16, 18, 20, and 2021, but it's up almost 10 times in that time. So, how do TDM manage their portfolio to not only weather these uh, corrections, but also take advantage of these corrections when they occur? Yeah, that that's right. I mean, in our 17-year history of investing, you know, we've we've invested through a financial crisis in 08, you know, a debt crisis in Europe in 2010, and uh, and multiple large drawdowns uh, over the past decade or so that we that we call out in the memo. Uh, and look, I'll say up front, it's 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 not fun investing during a downturn. It's it's not fun, but there are ways there are ways or things you can do to navigate it. Um, and you know, one of the things that we do, we are bottom up investors. So we're looking at each individual business and and making an investment decision on, on that business. But we do like to have an eye on where we are in the cycle. We think it's really important to, to know where we are in the market cycle. Uh, so for example, a year ago, when we released that first memo, when we were talking about, you know, valuations being stretched, uh, we also talked about how we were playing defense with our portfolio. Uh, and so what that means in practice is in those situations, we'll have a higher cash weighting than, than, than otherwise, and we'll have lower, lower sort of weightings in, in the investments than we would otherwise. Uh, whereas on the flip side, if we're in a period where we think valuations are attractive, like right now, then we'll, we'll, we'll go on the offense and we'll start, um, you know, we'll start drawing down that cash balance and, and running at a lower cash balance and having higher weightings across the portfolio. And so if you look back over our, our history, you know, we've had extended periods where we've had, you know, more than 30% of the portfolio in cash. And we've had periods where we have basically no cash, so we're fully invested. So I think that you know managing that cash balance and, and having that playing, you know, know, knowing when to play offense and when to play defense is is really important. Um, the, the the second thing I'll say is we never use financial leverage. It's just not something that we think is is you know makes sense to us. But obviously, if you are leveraged, that does amplify things on both the upside and, and the downside. And if you are leveraged going into a market downturn, you know, that's, that's when you can really, you know, get wiped out. So, so, so leverage is something that, you know, just to be careful of. Um, and I guess when it comes to specific trading tactics, what I'd say there in particular during a downturn, we like to use what we call the chip away approach. So chip away, what, what we mean by that is if, you know, once we decide we're buying shares and we find the companies we want to start buying, we start buying small amounts over, over a long period of time. And the reason for that is we're not trying to time the market. You know, we don't know if the market's at a bottom, if it's near the bottom, or if it's, you know, a long time away from the bottom. We just know that we're paying an attractive price today. And so we're going to buy a little bit today. We'll buy a bit more tomorrow. And we'll keep doing that until we no longer think it's an attractive price. Uh, and so I think that, that chip away approach has worked, served us well during, during downturns and something that we, you know, we're, we're doing right now. Um, and I think the final thing I'd say, and this is probably most relevant to, to, to the retail or, um, you know, to, to the retail investors is this idea of emotional stability. It's, it's just such an important thing to, to have while, you know, while, while investing during a downturn, uh, it's, it's so easy to, you know, see share prices falling every day and just to throw in the towel and, and, and hit the sell button. 
and 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 that's usually the worst time to do it. And and I think you know if if you can just maintain your emotional stability, go back to the businesses, go back to the facts, and make a rational decision. That that's really important. And I think that is a that is a real edge over institutional investors who often face you know client redemption pressures and monthly reporting pressures, and they're forced to sell at the wrong time. So I think for the retail investor that can maintain their emotional stability, they can have a real edge over over the institutional investor. I think, uh, Andy, one of my personality traits that serves me very well as uh, an investor is that I'm a very lazy person. And so (laughs) I would just go long periods without checking my portfolio and just being confident in the decisions I made at the time and not watching those day-to-day price movements. And I can tell you in the last couple of weeks, that's definitely saved me uh, a lot of ang- anxiety, um, and I think it's an, an important reminder. I do want to pick up on the first thing you said there because I think it's it's worth stressing on. When we talk about port- portfolio construction, um, you mentioned having an allocation of cash on the sidelines uh, ready to take advantage of the opportunities. You know, that that's one of the best things about being a retail investor. We don't have a mandate from clients that say we have to be X percent invested at all times. And uh, one of your colleagues at TDM, Ben, uh, joined us on the podcast early last year um, and he spoke about portfolio construction. We did a full episode on it, so I'd recommend uh, going and listening to that if people want to, I guess, go deeper on on some of the points that Andy hit on there. Yeah. I also would suggest listening to Ed and Tom, uh, who we spoke to over the last couple of years. It's you may as well throw Hamish in there as well. <laughs> where he spoke about that chi- that chip away approach. And, and that's something that I, after doing those episodes, have actually brought into my investing during times like this. A lot of uh, you know people in the community will have a chunk of money and kind of try and say or predict that, you know, is this the time to put all my all my money into into meta but um having that chip away approach i think is a fantastic way of uh, entering into positions um and taking away that anxiety of it's now or never um so yeah some really good pieces of advice that i think are very actionable um for the equity community so thanks andy well that does bring us to the end of the episode we love to finish with three final questions but before we get to that if uh our community are interested in reading the memo, I would certainly suggest that they do, or any of the other pieces of analysis and, and written content that you guys are doing over at TDM. Where's the best place to, to find that? This memo can be can be found uh, across our LinkedIn page as well as the TDM Medium page. But if but if you go on our website, you can you can find all our all our content as well. Awesome, and we'll um we'll put a sh- uh, a link to the memo in our show notes for everyone. Well, Andy, uh, we appreciate you uh, joining us today. As Bryce mentioned, we always like to end with the same final three questions. Uh, So we'll get stuck into those. And the first is... Do you have any books that you consider must read? Yeah, um, this was this was hard for me because because there's a lot. But um, I'll, I'll I'll throw sort of three things out there that were were really influential for me. So the first is probably quite well known, uh, and it, and that's Poor Charlie's Almanac. So that that's the compilation of Charlie Munger's best speeches, writings, um, you know, philosophies, life philosophies, investing philosophies. And in, in my opinion, it, it's the best book on self-improvement that I've ever read. So I guess, that, you know, for me, it's a must, must have in the investor's library. The second is probably a bit, a bit more obscure. Uh, and it, it's a book called Expectations Investing by, by, by a guy called Michael Morbison and Al Rappaport. Have you guys heard of Michael Morbison before? Mm, yeah, I, I have, no. yeah. He, he's, he's best described as every professional investor's favorite investor. 
Oh, wow. uh, and so he's probably not a, he's not a household name, uh, you know, as, as some some other investors are, but he's well known in the invest in the investment community. And Michael, he, he's a he's a professional investor, but he's also a bit of a polymath and, and, and an academic as well. So what he does really well is he combines different schools of thoughts, um, you know, different disciplines, and applies them to investing. And he's he's written a lot of articles and, and a number of books. And and the book I'm recommending, Expectations Investing is all about basically it's a framework for how investors should first analyze what is being priced into a stock today and then use that to form a view on whether it's a buyer or a holder or a sell. And it's actually the same framework that we use in our memo. You know, when we talk about what do we need to believe to make a return from here, that's the framework that we're using, uh, you know, to, to form that view. So it, it's a really good book and it's a, it, it's a book that can be applied by, by any, any, any investor. So that, that's the that's the second one. The third source that I, I'd give is the investment letters from from the Nomad Partnership. So the Nomad Partnership was a concentrated investment fund run by two guys, uh, Nick Sleep and his partner Zach Zachariah, and they they and they ran that fund I think from two thousand and one to two thousand and fourteen, where they compounded at about twenty one percent per annum over that period. So so really good returns, um, and actually. What, what they're famous for is being really early on Amazon. So they were in, invested in Amazon uh, in the early 2000s and they held it all the way up until they dissolved the fund in 2014. And what's really fascinating about that story is in 2014, Amazon had grown to, to 70% of their portfolio. Uh, and those guys realized they, they felt bad charging their clients a fee to effectively manage a one-stock portfolio. <laughs> so what the, so they so, so they they quite literally dissolved the fund and handed the stock to their clients and said just hold on to this stock don't pay us any fees and we all know what happened from there you know amazon's been a been an awesome performer and so that was a that was a you know that 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 worked and um if you read their letters they they go through i mean they go through a lot of things but they they go through in detail their amazon thesis and it's just great to see over the years during the ups and the downs of the amazon share price how their thinking evolved and and sort of how they were how they were approaching it. So just if 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 you just look up Nick Sleep investment letters in Google, you can find them all for free, and it's just an awesome read. I'm pretty envious of uh, that that guy's life. If he had seventy percent in Amazon and he was so confident in the company, there's probably a lot of time to you know go play golf, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and just do do some other things, yeah. collect fees as you go. Um, but I think three uh, three great recommendations there. Um, Andy, the next question uh, we like to ask, uh, forget valuation, just purely on, you know, what the company is and what it does. Uh, what's the best company you've ever come across? The best company? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a bit cheeky here and sort of give you two somewhat indirect answers. Um, so, so the first, the first thing for me, if, if I think about the best business, there's, there's, there's a few criteria that come to mind. The first is an ability to earn a return on invested capital above the cost of capital for a long period of time. The second would be a permanent monopoly position. The third would be no no pricing regulation, so basically free to set their own prices. And then the fourth would be constant and growing demand for that product. Uh, and I, I actually can't think of, of, of any investable businesses that, that meet that criteria. The the only one that comes to mind is my high school uniform shop. So <laughs> if anyone knows, if anyone can tell me how, how to invest in that, that'd be a great great business. <laughs> nice. Um, really so that, that's the first thing. I, I I guess the second the second thing I'd say, you know, we're we're trying to trying to find find the best growth companies in the world to invest in at TDM. 
And we use a few different frameworks to help us, you know, help guide us through that. And so there are, there are two concepts I'd like to, to throw out there that, that sort of we use when we're assessing that. And, and one is this idea of vitality. And, and the other one is this idea of anti-fragility. So just to cover off on those. So, so vitality is this idea that the best growth companies are constantly reinventing themselves and constantly investing in future growth, growth options. Uh, and I think the most famous example of that is, is Amazon uh, with AWS. So obviously, you know, they were a retail business. They created AWS and now AWS accounts for, for more of the value than, than the retail business. But there are lots of examples of, of businesses that are, that are in, the, in different stages of that vitality process. Uh, and we, you know, we've been quite public on, on Spotify as one of our, you know, one of our sort of, um, you know, core holdings. And if you look at Spotify, you know, we think they're in the early stages of creating that vitality. And so what they're doing is that they're investing a lot in, in their, in their podcasting operations, um, as well as building, building an audio ad, advertising network. And so we, you know, we think that if, if that pays off, then that could be, you know, a massive, massive contributor to Spotify's valuation over time. Mm. So this idea of anti-fragility is, it's really that, that the best businesses have these self-reinforcing mechanisms that allow them to thrive during difficult environments. Um, and, you know, the example I'd give for that is, is Guzman e. Gomez. And, and I know you've had Stephen Marks, uh, the CEO and founder on, on the podcast before. And, you know, if you, if you look at the, the COVID period, I mean, it was devastating for hospitality. It was devastating for, for most restaurants. It, it actually accelerated GYG's business. And the reason for that is because they were able to, um, to firstly lower prices and secondly shift sales to, to the delivery channel. And they could only do that because they had the margin structure to support lower prices and they had the throughput to support the delivery channel. Uh, and so their business accelerated while peers were, were hurting. And, and I think that's a great example of, of, of anti-fragility. Wasn't the chicken burrito the most ordered meal on Uber Eats yeah. during COVID, pretty yeah, it, pretty amazing. It was, and actually, we just we just learned that it was the most ordered meal in Singapore as well on Deliveroo. So, oh wow, it, 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 oh it wow, crosses borders. There you go. I wow. actually didn't know Guzman was in Singapore. No, they so. ship the burritos across. <laughs> 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 I, uh, I I also think Andy, going back to your Spotify um, mention and talking about how they invest for the future. Uh, it, it's a running joke here at Equity Mates that Spotify are just buying everything in the podcast space. Uh, they bought Wooshka a little earlier this year, an Australian podcast host. Then like last week, they announced they bought Pod Sites and Chartable. They are a business that sees a future in podcasting and are uh, investing heavily in it. Um, so you're talking about you know com- trying to find companies that are investing for the future. That we are certainly seeing that uh, in the industry over here. So, uh, Andy, that, that brings us to our final question. Um, if you think back to your younger self, uh, pulling out the ASX 200 index and looking down the list of companies, landing on BHP, making that first Not investment. very far down. Yeah, I know. You didn't go very far, did you? <laughs> ANZ. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give your younger self? Yeah, well, look, I'd, I'd, I'd like to think I'm not that old yet, but um, but maybe that's my, my own, uh, you know, maybe I'm wrong there, but... um. Look, I, I wouldn't change a lot about, about the past, but um, I guess I would go back to myself in 2008 when I was staring at, you know, at those devastating losses in my portfolio. And I would, I would tell myself not, not to worry because those, those losses, that experience will, will help shape, you know, shape the investor that you're going to become. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Ray Dalio's, um, you know, principle of pain plus reflection equals progress. And I think as investors, 
as long-term investors, we're going to experience a lot of pain. That's just part of it. Um, but the only way you can progress and get better is if you reflect. So having a, having a reflection process as, as part of your investment process is key. Uh, and I honestly think that being able to do that is, is the key to just constantly getting better as an investor. So I'll definitely go back in time and tell myself not to worry. It's all going to be fine uh, and just learn from this and, and you'll be better for it. Awesome. Well, Andy, uh, every time we speak to someone from TDM, um, you know, it's it's so enjoyable. You guys have such a clear idea of who you are as investors and the framework to follow. And there's so much to learn from from that. Uh, as And I'm sure the Equity Mates community always take a lot of value from hearing from you guys. So we appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, all the best. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, guys. It was great to be here. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. 